As we think about the the topic of of the Trinity this morning, normally we start with the passage of Scripture and we kind of open it up in the message. We're going to kind of do the opposite this morning where we're going to focus on the Trinity, we're going to think about the Trinity, and we're going to end by going into the passage of Scripture. We're going to focus in there at the end. So you can put your finger in there and, um, and we'll get there. So I've entitled this talk, The Trinity, so what? Because the Trinity is one of those doctrines that that we learn as kids in Sunday school, if we went to Sunday school, and and, and maybe it didn't really mean much, we didn't really understand it then, and maybe we don't really understand it now, and we're not sure what the point is anyway. If you went to Sunday school, you may have experienced Sunday school teachers struggling to explain to little kids how God is one, and yet at the same time, God could be three. And maybe they trotted out the three-leaf clover, you know, one leaf with three loaves, or, or the triangle, one shape with three sides, or, or maybe the color purple, you know, one color purple, and yet at the same time it's three colors. It's red and blue and, and purple. Or, or maybe they got technical as a cartoon I once saw illustrated, and I don't have the visual for you, but here's the dialogue. Jesus, who do people say that I am? Disciples. Some say John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Others, Elijah. Still others, one of the prophets. Jesus. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter. You are the Son of God, co-equal with the Father, sharing in his essence and yet a unique person, God of very gods, man of very man, begotten before time, existing in perfect unity with the Father and the Spirit, of one substance with them, yet a unique hypostasis in your own right. Jesus, what? (laughs) The doctrine of the Trinity can seem confusing and and complicated and impractical. And so we may wonder why in the world the early church spent hundreds of years hammering it out in councils and, and making heretics of those who didn't agree with what they came up with. I mean, the word Trinity isn't even in the Bible. The Trinity, so what? Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that the doctrine of the Trinity does matter and that the Trinity is actually very interesting, very relevant, and very inspiring. I mean, how could the true God be anything else? Well, to get us started, what image should we use to get our minds around how God could be three in one? Well, the one that I find most helpful and which has been popular recently among theologians is the image of, the, of a dance. Listen to Eugene Peterson describe it. He says, imagine a folk dance, a, a round dance with three partners in each set. The music starts up and the partners holding hands begin moving in a circle. On signal from the caller, they release hands, they change partners, and they weave in and out, swinging first one and then the other. The tempo increases. The partners move more swiftly with and between and among one another, swinging and twirling, embracing and releasing, holding on and letting go. These are practiced and skillful dancers. To the onlooker, the movements are so swift that it's impossible at times to distinguish one person from another. The steps are so intricate that it is difficult to anticipate the actual configurations as they appear. 
The essence of the Trinity, the centerpiece of Christian theology, and sometimes considered the most subtle and abstruse of all doctrines, is captured here in a picture that anyone can observe in an American neighborhood barn dance or an Irish Cayley. The Trinity, the, the inner life of God, is like a dance. There is movement, there is beauty, there is intimacy, there is embrace as each Father, Son, and Spirit celebrate the others with love, with affection, with delight. And so great is their intimacy and, and so deep and complete are their relationships and their union that the three are actually also one. Have you ever had a soulmate, a kindred spirit, someone you connected with so well and so deeply that it was like sometimes you knew their words before they spoke them or, or they could almost read your mind? And being with them sometimes touched you in, in your deepest places. It made you feel completely alive. It, it made you feel more yourself than, than you knew you were before that. Or have you ever known a couple or a family or a group of friends and, and when you looked at their relationships, you were drawn to the love that they had for each other. They had fun. They had rich uh, relationships that were, were caring and were considerate. And you thought, man, I want to be a part of that group. I want to experience what they have. That's just the smallest glimpse of what the Father, the Son and the Spirit have going on with one another. At the heart of the universe is a community. The doctrine of the Trinity teaches us that the heart of God is ultimately relational. Now, where do we see this in the Bible? Because as I mentioned, the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. Well, you won't find a lot of clear evidence in the Old Testament for the Trinity. In fact, I think it's safe to say that Jesus' own followers didn't believe in the Trinity until sometime after Jesus' death and resurrection. The, the Trinity wasn't some doctrine that Jesus taught them and they had to believe in it to follow him. No, the Trinity was rather a surprising and yet an inescapable conclusion that they eventually reached with the help of the Holy Spirit from reflecting on what God had revealed about himself to them through the coming of Jesus Christ. After all, they were all good Jews, and just about every day of their lives, they'd repeated the confession of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. God is one. God is is high and holy and lifted up in the highest heaven. But, but then this man, Jesus, comes into their lives and, and he's forgiving sins and he's calming storms, two things that only God could do. And, and Jesus is, is teaching with authority. He's giving them commands as if when he speaks, God speaks. And Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God, claiming that he and God are one, that that he has come from the Father and that he's returning to the Father. How could this be? God is one. God is up in heaven. How could God be right here too? And yet in Jesus, they experienced, as they reflect on this later, God had been with them. That was unmistakable. They had experienced it. They believed it. 
And then as Jesus had prepared to leave them, he promised that he would send them another comforter, his own spirit, the Father's own spirit. And, and later at Pentecost, when they received this spirit, they knew that Jesus was back in a new way. That Jesus was with them again. That the Father was with them and in them through this spirit. Again, how could this be? God was the one God, invisible, untouchable, in heaven. How could Jesus be God too? How could the spirit be God? And yet they were God. How could all three be God when there was only one God? The answer, the doctrine of the Trinity. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. God is three, but the three are one, one God. The theologians put it this way, that God has one essence, one substance, but God is three persons. And so God is just as much three as God is one, and God is just as much one as God is three. It's not that, that God is, is one person who wears three costumes, or, or that God has revealed himself, one person who's revealed himself in three different ways at different points in history. No, the Son is, is not just the Father with a different mask on, or, or in a different form, or as a different avatar. No, the Son is a different person from the Father. And the Spirit is different from the other two. But on the other hand, Father, Son, and Spirit are not three separate people who, who just have great teamwork and they cooperate so well, they're really close. No, it's, it's more than that. The three are one being. God is not just a triple they, and God is not just a single he. No, God is both. As theologian J.I. Packer puts it so succinctly, he is they... And they are he. Now figure that one out. <laughs> the theologians have tried to understand and to describe how this can be, and, and they've built on this analogy of a dance. It's not a perfect analogy because three dancers are more three than they are one. And the dance itself, of course, is one dance, but, it, but a dance isn't quite as real of a thing as, as people are. But at least the dance captures the relationships, the dynamic, the, the love and the joy and the celebration, which is the Trinity. Theologians use the word perichoresis to further build on this. There's a big Greek word for you if, you if you want one this morning. You can write it down. Perichoresis. This word expresses the idea of, of three orbits or revolving circles that are moving in and out of one another. They're, they're penetrating, they're overlapping one another, they're sharing sameness and oneness and unity as they, as they orbit in and occupy the same space, and yet then they also circle out and they maintain their distinction too. And that's the image that theologians drew on all the way back in the early centuries. Notice that, that these images involve movement because you can't capture the being of God with one static image. God is dynamic. God is relational. But so what? Why does any of this matter? Why spend so much time going into so much detail, dotting our I's and crossing our theological T's? Why? Because the Trinity does matter a great deal. Because the truth is, and, and theologians and, and wise men and women have recognized this for millennia, we each hold an image of God 
in our mind's eye. And we become like the God we imagined. Is our God fickle and, and impulsive and unfaithful like the gods of the Greek myths? Well, then what reason do we have not to be fickle and impulsive and unfaithful? Is our God austere and, and cold and disciplined and, and distant? Then we will likely become the same. Is our God a trinity? That too will affect who we ourselves will become. To be to fully be human, to, to live well as humans, we have to know the one who stands at the center of being, at the center of life. To, to love well, we have to know the one who is love. And so as we begin now to reflect on several reasons that the doctrine of the Trinity, that, ma ma that it matters, that it's practical for us, let me give you a picture to reflect on if we can have the, the image This is a very famous icon by uh, Andrei Rublev, a Russian, famous Russian painter from the 15th century. Now, don't worry, this isn't a picture of the Trinity. God warns us not to make a visual image of him, right? This is an image from the Old Testament of the three heavenly visitors who visited Abraham, if you know that story, and he, he served them a lavish meal. But this painting is also meant to be an analogy, a, a window into our appreciating some truths about the Trinity. Notice first the posture of the three, the way their heads are tipped. Each is pointing to the other, deferring to the other, directing our attention away from themselves into the other one. Also notice what's at the center. It looks like it might be a communion chalice, suggesting communion, communion unity, thanksgiving, celebration, invitation. And finally, notice the perspective. Usually a picture starts wide in the front, and, and as you go back toward the horizon, it gets narrower, right? It fades off into the distance. But here it's just the opposite. As you go deeper in, you know, you can look at the communion chalice or whatever it is there and, and kind of follow the picture up. It, it gets wider. Now, now, why is that? Well, maybe it's because the way in is narrow, but the deeper you go into God, the more there is. I don't know what he meant by that, but let's go with that for this morning. Anyway, for those of you who are visual, I invite you to keep this image before you as we reflect now on three reasons that the Trinity matters. There are a lot of other reasons, of course, we could look at, but we'll look at three this morning. First, the doctrine of the Trinity helps us to steer a healthy course between the age-old tension between individualism and collectivism. This tension is about which is more important, the individual or the group? You or your family? Uh, you or your church? You or your city? In America, the answer is obvious. You are. I am. My time, my schedule, my career, my education. We've been so conditioned to believe that just about every day of our lives. That's because we live in a culture which is highly individualistic. In America, the, the good of the individual comes before the good of the group. But, but other cultures, you know, don't buy that for a second. You go to other cultures, they're, they're collectivist cultures. In those cultures, the good of the group comes before the good of the individual. 
In those cultures, the, the individual is expected to, to submit his or her rights and, and freedoms to the good of the group. So you don't get an education if your family needs you to work on the farm. You don't get to marry the love of your life if that doesn't benefit your clan and your elders. You don't get to pursue your passion to be a buffalo hunter if your tribe needs you to be a fisherman. Now, from our highly individualistic perspective, that sounds oppressive, right? An individual personality or dream is being stifled. But let me ask you, what about maybe you've heard the, the famous story of the little Dutch boy who notices the hole in the dike? Um, it's, it's been a, a really stormy afternoon and, and there's water trickling through the dike and he sticks his chubby finger in there and into the hole and it, it stops the water. And, and so he's standing there with his finger in the, in the dike and pretty soon night begins to fall. It gets dark. It gets scary. It gets cold. He knows his parents are probably worried about him. And no one comes along. And, and he knows if he takes his finger out of the dike, the water will pour through and the hole will fairly quickly erode away and get bigger. And pretty soon the dike will burst and it's going to wipe out the whole village. But, but what if no one comes along to help? Should, should he stay there? Should he sacrifice his personal freedom and, and his comfort for the greater good of many others? And for how long should he do this? What is really more important, the good of the individual or the good of the group? Well, the doctrine of the Trinity helps us with that question because God's being stands right at the heart of the universe, right at the, the fundamental foundation of reality. And God is not more an individual than he is a group. And God is not more a group than God is an individual. God is, is both equally. And, and so this suggests that individuals are not more important than groups, and groups are not more fundamentally important than individuals, but that there's a tension here we need to, to live in. There's a healthy balance that we and all cultures need to seek to strike. But I'll tell you, in America, we're way over on the individual side, way over, perhaps more than any culture has ever been. That's why part of our church's mission is growing together, together. We recognize at CBC that in American culture, we are by far more prone to the, the sins of individualism and self-centeredness and, and narcissism. And, and so we need to, to recapture the fact that at the heart of reality, at the heart, at the center of the very universe is a loving community. A community. A God who has made us in his own image to be relational beings who are meant to live in community too. In fact, the Trinity teaches us that we can't be fully persons. We can't be fully ourselves apart from others. We can't ever strike out on our own to find ourselves and ultimately succeed. No, no, we will never fully know ourselves and, and find ourselves and be ourselves apart from relationships with others. And so we as a church ha have an opportunity to, to lead the way in rebuilding community, in stemming the tide of loneliness and, and fragmentation and isolation which have been sweeping America.
for decades now. That's part of what the missional communities that we're getting ready to launch are all about. Okay, the Trinity, it matters. Second, second example of how this doctrine is practical. <clears throat> Question, as we live in community, as we live in relationships, how do we function together? How do we organize ourselves? What sort of leadership should we have at various levels of our, our life together? Should, for those who are married, should our marriages be hierarchical as some Christians teach? with the man being the leader and the woman being the one who follows? Or, or is marriage, as other Christians teach, a partnership with both husband and wife submitting to one another and contributing their insights and their gifts and their abilities as a team? What about in church government or political government for that matter? Is hierarchy a better model or is some form of democracy a better model? Which model is more in tune with the way things are meant to be when they're at their most healthy and ideal? How does the world ideally work? How was it meant to work? Is the world so constituted that some are meant to have authority over others? Or, or is it best for everyone to have some say and for us to collectively decide? Well, again, when we dig deep into these questions, when we drill down to the essence of reality, to the fundamental principles of how the universe is wired, we wind up looking at God. We wind up looking at the Trinity. What is God like? Is God fundamentally a hierarchy with, with God the Father being the, the, the chief leader among them and the Son and the Spirit submit to the Father? Or is God fundamentally an equal partnership with, with Father, Son, and Spirit all deciding and willing together in unity and collaboration? Well, this is an area of debate among theologians. Everyone agrees that in their essence, Father, Son, and Spirit are equally great and equally powerful and equally awesome. But, but some theologians say in practice, the Son always submits to the Father and does the will of the Father. Others say, no, that was just a temporary arrangement for Jesus' time on earth for the sake of our salvation. And even then it wasn't that simple because the Father also glorifies the Son. And, and the, in fact, the Father has lifted the Son up to the highest place as Lord of all. And so that's an open debate. And, and we're not going to solve that debate this morning. But my point is that in that debate, the Trinity matters. And as you hear Christians debate matters of leadership, you may hear them discussing the nature of the Trinity, throwing around terms like subordinationism and what it means. Because the church recognizes that, that thinking about the Trinity, studying the Trinity has practical implications for how we choose leaders in the church and how we respond to their leadership and even how husbands and wives live together and manage the challenges and decisions of life. Okay, let's move on to the third practical relevance for the doctrine of the Trinity, and that has to do with our personal relationship with God. Remember, when God was up in heaven all through the Old Testament, we didn't know that God was a Trinity. But when God came down, when God expressed his love toward us in, in serving us and, and drawing close to us, then we realized that God was three as well as one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We only know God as Trinity. We only know God is a relational community because he loved us enough to reach out 
and save us. God's community, God's interrelationality, the love God has and is within God's self only became fully known to us when he shared that love with us, when he came down and laid down his life for us. There's something profound here. In choosing to save us and love us, God opened himself up to show us more of who God really is. And not only did God open himself up, God also invited us in. I like the way preacher Daryl Johnson has often put this New Testament reality. He says, the heart of God is open wide and you are welcome to come in. God is now inviting us into his heart. God is inviting us into his family. God is inviting us into his love. You know, the Gospel of John is an amazing reflection on all this, especially chapters 14 to 17. And I encourage you to go home and reflect on it. We don't have time to do that now, but let's look at Galatians 4, 4 to 6, which sums it up more succinctly. The, the verses that we looked at earlier. Listen again to what the Bible has to say about the Trinity here. Not the Trinity clothed in, in awesome mystery up in heaven somewhere, but rather the Trinity in action. The Trinity come close. The Trinity embracing us in love. But when the set time had fully come, God, there's the Father, sent His Son, there's the Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son, there's the spirit, into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Wow, this is good news. This is the Trinity in action, which is really the only way we know the Trinity. The Father loves us. So he sends his own beloved son who also loves us and, and comes down to save us. They forgive all of our sins. They pay the price, as we saw last week, the price for our violation of the law, for our violation of relationships, for our inner bentness. They pay the price. They reconcile us to themselves. And then not only that, but they also adopt us as children into their family. And to seal the deal, they give us their spirit. And through this spirit, God actually comes and dwells in our hearts. And so, as we're about to see, we also come to dwell in God's heart. Because what does the spirit cry out? A few of you cried it out this morning. Abba, Father! And where have we heard that word Abba before? It's Aramaic, it means something like Papa. Well, there's a parallel reference in Romans, but, but the other place that, that, that we hear it is only one other scripture in the Bible, and it's on the lips of Jesus. Abba is Jesus' word for the Father. It's what the Son called the Father when, when the Son prayed to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane in that most intimate and vulnerable moment. So what does this mean? It means that the Spirit is bringing us into the Son's relationship with the Father. Did you hear that? 
Let me say it again a slightly different way. This is where we experience the Trinity. As through the Spirit, we are brought into the Son's relationship with the Father. Through the Spirit, we are brought into the Son's prayers to the Father. Through the Spirit, we are brought into the Son's delight and intimacy with the Father. Wow. God's heart is open wide and you are welcome to come in. And how do we come in? Through Jesus Christ and through the Spirit. Or more specifically, we come in as the Spirit enables us to share in the communion and the intimacy that the Son shares with the Father. Through the Spirit, we enjoy being sons and daughters of God. Because the Spirit enables us to enjoy and to experience what the Son experiences in relating to God the Father. We have been invited into the very relationships at the heart of the Trinity. We have been invited into the dance, into the embrace, into the love, into the delight, into the intimacy, into the celebration. That's a reason to get to know God. That's a reason to pray. That's a reason to meditate on scripture. That's a reason to worship. And, and when we feel like we're not doing a good enough job at those things, we can relax. Because the Son is praying. The Son is worshiping. The Son is loving the Father. And through the Spirit, we participate in that. And so when we're weak, and when we fail in our attempts to, to relate to God, we can get out of the way and, and we can let Jesus take over. We can rest on the Spirit and let the Spirit join our prayers to Jesus' prayers, our worship to Jesus' worship, to join what we offer with what the Son is offering to the Father. Because we have been invited into the very heart of the Trinity. Aren't you glad to know more about the Trinity?